since it's done, um, actually in your barns under commercial conditions, your management, good or bad, your intakes, good or bad, your growth, right. good or bad, you don't have to make that application or interpretation. You know, right. yeah, some of the, the frustration that my peers have that, that may be in a better situation or, or have different cards to play in terms of having a wean to finish barn is their health status or their intake is so different that they don't necessarily see the same response that they do once they try to put it in commercial production. Swine it. It's time for a new era of communication in the swine industry. One that you can get the latest updates while commuting or driving to farms. Here you will have the brightest minds of the global swine industry in your pocket. Hey everyone, so today we have Dr. Trey Counter, uh, and he's going to chat about how to conduct research with no research barns. So um, this chat, we go over pros and cons of system-wide research studies, how many closeouts you need to run uh, you know, a scientifically correct study, um, revisit the concept of an experimental unit, and then uh, discuss what is a rolling allotment, which uh, not very uh, often uh, commented how to control variation when you're conducting these large-scale system-wide uh, studies uh, chat about cell research a recent transition feeding study that he did and also a recent study on bump feeding in late gestation um, the performance and economics uh, from a study that he did and uh, we chat briefly about multiplication of body weight gain some thoughts on intrinsic versus extrinsic factors and finally, how your priority might not be other people's priorities. So with that, enjoy the episode and uh, we'll talk soon. Swine It Podcast is only possible with the support of forward-looking and innovative sponsors like Genesis, the first power in genetics. Zinpro, essential trace minerals, exceptional performance. Every Pig, a simple yet powerful pig health and production management tool. Just all. Always one step ahead in swine feeding. Adiseo provides programs and services to help producers achieve their targets in a high-quality, safe, and sustainable way. NutriQuest, experts serving producers and delivering breakthrough solutions. Welcome to Swine Eat Podcast. My name is Marcel Gonçalves, your host for today's episode. This episode's sponsor highlight is about Genesis. Genesis is the largest independent producer of high-health registered purebred swine in the globe, having over 80% of all registered purebred breeding stock in Canada. The Genesis genetic program uses genomic selection strategies focused on productivity, faster growth, efficiency, high yield, and meat quality. To know more, go to genesis.com. G-E-N-E-S-U-S dot -E -S com. Hello, everyone. So today we have Dr. Uh, Trey Kellner, uh, and uh, we're going to chat about how to conduct research with uh, no research barns. So how are you, Trey? Hey, I'm good, Marcio. How about yourself? Good, good. Thanks for joining. I uh, know crazy times, busy times for you, so I appreciate that. Uh, and, you know, big topic here, a lot of producers around the globe uh, don't have some the research capabilities that we see in some other systems. So um, very curious to see your thoughts there. But before that, for those that don't know you, if you can just walk us through your career so far 
and uh, what you're doing right now. Yeah, sure, Marcio. First, welcome to the Fatherhood Club. Congrats uh, on that news. Yeah, thank that, you. Thank you. That's awesome. Welcome to uh, Sleepless Nights, and um, at least it gives you some opportunity to uh, continue to learn and, and yeah. uh, read for sure. So, yeah. Yeah, emails and all, all those things. Right, yeah. So so on that note, I should probably start with, you know, um, young dad, right? So mm-hmm. my wife, Heather, and then uh, 17-month-old Theo, right? And we currently mm-hmm. live in Audubon, Iowa, and am AMBC's uh, swine nutritionist. And the unique part about that job was I was our first swine nutritionist. So mm-hmm. um, it didn't really have a president for my role um, and how it should be structured and what my responsibility should be. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to get to this point, right, grew up in, in Northwest Kansas um, on the edge of a small rural town where my dad managed the cooperative feed mill. So that's how I got my nutrition start was just watching him in the evenings as a young kid and then pushing yeah. a broom, right, um, mm-hmm. and, and cleaning up the mill in the evenings and then um, helping um, run it and then be an employee there in, in high school and college. Um, went to a small community college in Western Kansas called Colby Community College on a lifestyle judging scholarship. Got two associate's degrees there, one in history and then and then okay. one in uh, animal science. Wow. And then, yeah, you know, the, the other part of my background would be heavily involved in 4-H and FFA. So had a small pharaoh to finish operation um, and, and did the show circuit. Um, so from there, um, then went to the University of Nebraska-Lincoln where I got my bachelor's in animal science. Mm-hmm. Um, was really pushed to pursue swine nutrition at the graduate level from uh, Dr. Phil Miller and Dr. Tom Berkey. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are kind of my mentors at Nebraska. And uh, they, they introduced me to uh, Dr. John Patience at Iowa State University, who I got my master's and PhD under. Um, so graduated in 2017, since have been in, in this fun and challenging role um, to try to oversee our feeding programs and in nine different states across 28 different toll mills and oh, probably 400 plus diets um, wow. that, you know, have been reformulated umpteen times in the past five weeks, let me tell you. So, wow. so yeah, ha- having a young child and some sleepless nights um, at least allows me some opportunity to stay caught up. So how about yeah, that? Yeah, <laughs> very cool. Yeah, it's amazing. It's a, a very uh, a large scale system that, that you run there. So very, very cool. Um, from the research standpoint, Trey, what, what are your first uh, thoughts there? Yeah, so, you know, the, the title of this podcast is How to Conduct Research Without a Research Barn. And boy, doesn't that sound like an oxymoron, right? <laughs> um, yep. you know, um, yeah, a, a very ironic statement, right? right. So, um, yeah, in this position and currently within the system, um, we don't have a wean to finish or a nursery research barn. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I don't have the tool to conduct a lot of titration intensive controlled studies. Um, so, uh, first of all, I have to lean on other resources from that information, right? So, our genetic suppliers or academic institutions um, or allied industries, you know, together that information and and, and stay ahead of the curve on things like that. So those partnerships are real critical to making research work without a research farm, right? Is first, you gotta have that baseline information. Mm-hmm. Um, then the second deal, um, you know, once you have that in place, then you can do a lot of commercial field type evaluations to determine what's the best decision for your system. 
right? So we're, we're not in a situation where we can determine, um, you know, what dose of enzyme is correct, right? We can't do a, a five, five treatment titration on xylanase or phytase, right? right? But what we can do is determine which two levels are correct, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, same with any feed additives, um, you know, whether that's a yes, no situation or which dose is the best, right? So we can evaluate that as part of our current feeding program, right? So when distillers formulate in or out, when we are high energy, typically in the summer, not this Mm -hmm. summer, but most summers, (laughs) right? Or or, or we're in a low energy situation, right? Um, We we can um, determine what the impact of, of, of those two treatments are when we're of high intake, high health, or low intake, low health, right? So especially when it's a pre-mix type decision, right? We can't change our premix overnight. So in this situation, right, we ordered a whole bunch of premix to get it in our mills because we didn't know if there was going to be any logistic um, concerns of, of being able to get ingredients in um, mm-hmm. or be able to ship the premix out to our 28 mills, right? So mm-hmm. for us, if we were to make a premix change today, it'd probably be four to five months down the road mm-hmm. before that's going to get implemented and actually consumed you know, within our farms, right? So, so those type of things you can really evaluate by doing side-by-side or, or field-based comparisons um, within the field. And, and there's several pros and cons um, of that. I don't know if we should go into that. Yeah. Now, yeah. Or, yeah. You know, explain the concept. So, so pros and cons of, of side-by-side wean to finish research, right? So the, the first pro is, is there's not a lot of apples or interpretation that you need to make, right? So we both came from applied swine nutrition labs and the definition of that, right, is is taking, you know, intensive or academia, small-scale type research and then applying that into a commercial setting, right? That's the Mm -hmm. definition uh, of the program and the training, right? So so since it's done, um, actually in your barns under commercial conditions, your management, good or bad, your intake's good or bad, your growth right. good or bad. You don't have to make that application or interpretation. You know, right. yeah, some of the, the frustration that my peers have that, that may be in a better situation or, or have different cards to play in terms of having a wean to finish barn is their health status or their intake is so different that they don't necessarily see the same response that they do once they try to put it in commercial production. Mm-hmm. And, and it really causes some frustrations between, you know, the research program and then the, what they're seeing in the field and the production teams, because sometimes it can be two different environments or two different intakes or two different growth curves. And sometimes that can lead to two different responses or two different answers, right? In this situation, we've taken that completely out of play, right? So the finding that you're going to find, you know, within your commercial validations watch, is what actually happened, right? There's no <laughs> need to interpret that or apply that, right? So, right. so that's the first big pro of it, right, it is what you're able to do um, there and, and it's within the system and it's in play, right? So there, there are a lot of cons of, of this type of, you know, um, research. So the, the first con would be that it's slow, right? So it's going to be 12 to 18 months before you have enough statistical replication and power to right. be able to determine if that's a significant response, right? right. So, so people that want answers tomorrow aren't hmm. going to be able to get it. Where in a wean to finish research setting, you know, maybe you can generate an answer within two or three months, mm-hmm. right? Um, 
you know, the, the second thing is, is, is there will be uh, differing variables that are outside of your treatment structure within your experiment, right? So right. we are going to let our diets, you know, float in terms of energy or distillers level, or there is going to be different health statuses or intakes mm -hmm. throughout the trial, right? So right. It, it's not one subset, um, you know, it was this genetics, this health status, this diet, etc. Right. So, so that, that can be a, a con and, and cause a lot of variation within, within your statistical um, analysis and then your interpretation, right? So, mm -hmm. so that's a con. Um, the other con too is, you know, it, it does put some constraints on, you know, certain milling capabilities, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, we're, we're having to basically divide our, our diet sets, you know, in half or take mm -hmm. them times two, however you want to do that math, right? So we have to have milling partners that are willing to do that. And then we have to get it executed, right? So we're, we are putting more pressure on our, our feed desk team who does an amazing job in, in getting it executed because now they have to keep straight, you know, which farms <laughs> are on, are on which treatment and, and which diet set, et cetera. So, so there, there are some cons to it. it it's not a, not a perfect research situation, Maybe to take a step back, Marcio, maybe I should explain what, what we try to do to set up experiments. Yeah, I was going to ask you, yeah, walk us through, you know, do you, do you block by flows, block by feed meal, and what, what, is, what are the biggest things you, you block there? Yeah, so I think the first thing is, is you try to, you know, what's the objective of, of the experiment, right? You try to make that clear. Is it is it to validate a recent feeding change or is it to evaluate a new additive or a different dose, et cetera? And then from there, we try to determine which flow is going to give us the best answer, right, for that. So if we're trying to approve wean to finish mortality, right, we're probably going to select two flows. One flow that's of high health, right, and high mm -hmm. intake um, to where the magnitude of difference may be smaller or not apparent. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to select a low health, low intake um, type flow where the magnitude of difference may be greater if the technology or the strategy works right. Mm -hmm. And we'll base it from there. Some situations we may only pick one flow, right? But we definitely want to try to have source and genetics similar. And then we also want to try to choose flows in which sites are, are taken care of by multiple growers. Mm -hmm. So the traditional AMVC wean to finish barn is a, uh, 2,400 head wean to finish barn, mm -hmm. which we would usually have two barns per site. So we'd have two 2,400s. Mm -hmm. um, and those, those barns are going to be filled in back-to-back -back weeks. Mm -hmm. So what we can do is we can put, you know, one barn on treatment A and then another barn on treatment B to mm -hmm. try to take out those confounding variables of, of caretakers, um, you know, yeah. uh, uh, ventilation, environment, water intake, feed intake, et cetera. So um, I would say, you know, at least 70, 75% of our system and our wean to finish barns are set up that way. Okay. So we can have a lot of A to B side-by-sides with on the same site that are mm -hmm. on different treatments, okay. um, which tries to take out some of that variation out. So not every system set up that way. Um, right. you know, that's going to cause some complications for others. Um, so basically what we do there is once we have the objective and the flow determined, we try to determine, you know, how many closeouts, because that would be our in, our in would be our closeout or our barn, right? That would be the experimental unit. How many of those do we need to generate a significant response, right? So we do a power test 
and determine, you know, whether we need 25 or 50 or 100 closeouts. And then, you know, we'll start the experiment from there. And then um, when that's concluded, we'll, we'll run stats, write up a report, and see if we need to um, try to do that experiment under another situation. Or if, you know, the, the finding is conclusive or if there's no finding to conclude mm -hmm. that there was no impact and, and move on. So, um, cool. yeah, so that's kind of how we set that up um, in terms of the wean to finish side. Very good. Let's see. I had a few questions. Uh, one is, um, no, that's, that's amazing. When you say 25, 50 or 100 closeouts, uh, what, what, what would be our most common sample size, if you will, I guess? And is that by treatment, I'm assuming? Yeah, yeah. So by treatment, right? So I would say our most common would probably be in total anywhere from 80 to 100 closeouts, which means, you know, 40 to 50 per treatment, per treatment. in terms of replication, right? So take that number times 2,400, yeah. right? So we're talking, you know, 60, 80, 100,000 pigs you know, per treatment in some of our studies, right? So um, that that's the other pro, right? Is yeah, there's variation between sites. I mean, if there was no variation, our job would be a lot simpler, right, Marcio? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, th there's definitely variation. Um, but in terms of the the sample size within each experimental unit, and then the, you know the number of experimental units that we have in the 40s and 50s uh, makes the experiment pretty robust. Actually, when you look at it in terms of, of statistical error and the variation that you see in terms of your your standard deviation or your standard error. Um, when you do stats. No, that, that makes sense. One thing that comes to mind, you know, several episodes ago and mul multiple times, even some episodes we have on the pipeline here that we haven't published yet, we discuss about uh, this, right? For people in general, be careful just comparing one bar to the other. And I just want to make that extremely clear. I think it already is, but just to emphasize that we're talking here, dozens and dozens of barns against oh, yeah. other barns, right? And yes. And one comment there, Trace, what people need to understand is the concept of an experimental unit. And, and that can be a pig, can be a, a pen, can be a barn, can be a, multiple barns. It depends. It all goes back to what you, you randomize your treatment to. So if you're randomized to a pig within a pen, it's a vaccine study maybe. Okay, that's the pig. If, you know, if it's a pen, if it's a barn, right? And then, like you said, there's more variation, but you have a phenomenal large sample size, and, and that's, that's where the magic happens, right? Correct. No, you're exactly right. Yeah, definitely don't fall into the tra trap of doing 1v1s, right? You know, we, we vaccinated this barn. We didn't vaccinate this barn. We, we used this additive in one barn. We didn't use it here, right? Um, yeah, don't fall in that trap, right? Yeah. Um, you might as well just use, you know, observational or anecdotal evidence, right? If, if you're going to fall into that. So, right. yeah, no. And, and also, um, you know, I, I say, you know, don't cheat. Don't, don't peek under the covers, right? Don't get 10 closeouts in and go, oh, man, I want to run stats on this because I think I'm seeing some here, right? Mm, you have to be yeah. very dedicated and not have confirmational bias, to look at your data or summarize your data, even in a pivot table, right, to potentially mislead you into coming, you know, coming up with a premature conclusion before the experiment is concluded, right? Don't fall into that trap either. I mean, 
confirmational bias. <laughs> you have to fight it every single day. Yes, exactly right. And one thing that, that comes to mind there, Trey, is that probably something that we are not directly taught in school, which is something I learned when I was doing my large style study, which is what I call a rolling allotment. Because you're allotting almost every day, every week through months, like you said. Yes. And so you need to, it's a rolling allotment that you need to keep your eye on, right? Correct. Yes. No, it is a rolling allotment that you need to keep your eye on. And, you know, things change, right? So if health status changes, um, you know, as we go into summer months and, and you know, suppression of, of feed intake due to heat. Um, and there's, there's 20 other different variables that I could list off, right? Um, you definitely need to keep those in mind um, and make sure that you're interpreting your data correctly um, in doing that. So, yeah, very good point. Um, you know, the, the other thing that we try to do too is, is you know, we have a, a prediction model that, that we've generated through our closeout data and through some of our experiments to try to predict what our performance would be, right, over, mm -hmm. over each one of those closeout dates. Oh, wow. so, so we can use that model to determine what was the difference of each one of those closeouts from that model. Mm. And, and was that difference significant? Um, so, so that's the other thing that you can do, right? So you, yeah, you can do proc mix or proc limics and, you know, do a versus B or, you know, have a simple two treatment design, but you know, there's a couple different ways of interpretation via modeling that you can do in terms of the, the difference from the curve to determine if it was significant during that time period or that point compared to other closeouts or the inputs that were known uh, before those pigs were, were put on test. Very nice. Yeah, that's super cool. Uh, on that note, do you sometimes, do you have to use like any type of, so you block, fine, right? Block by a few things, but do you also have to use some covariates later? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, there, there are sometimes, you know, it, it depends on your objective and, and what, what you're trying to achieve, right? But there's sometimes you may need to use a covariate for start weight, right? So very simple academic type procedure that's done quite often, right? So if you, let's just say you have a, a three site flow, right? So you have nurseries and, and, you know, those weights coming out of the nursery are different, right? So you may have to use a, a start weight covariate there. Um, you may has, have to use, you know, different covariates, um, you know, as I said, in terms of, you know, um, intake or, or health status or anything like that, right, to try to minimize the variation or account for the variation before you determine differences, right? Mm -hmm. So, oh, for sure, definitely. Very good, very good. Very good. Awesome. Anything else on this topic, uh, Trey, uh, before we move to the three questions we ask yeah. every guest? Yeah, sure. So one thing I'd like to touch on is that's kind of the wing to finish basis or the finish basis, but we also do research within our sow farms, right? Okay. That, that, that we don't have a sow research facility either. And, yeah. you know, and we, we don't have, you know, um, um, a feeding systems that can account for intake or, or anything like that. So, the unique part about AMVC is we have converted a lot of our sow farms to batch farrowing mm -hmm. uh, within the past year and a half. Um, wow. A great effort that, you know, our, our veterinarian team and our leadership team. So, you know, Daryl Olson, uh, Jason Hooker, Josh Ellingson, Paul Thomas, um, you know, Ball Bloom, Michelle Sprague, Steve Schmitz, and, and others that I'm sure I'm leaving out um, have, have really championed the change in 
Um, it's helped us from a performance basis, but one advantage that it's provided me specifically and selfishly mm -hmm. now that gives us a great, um, great amount of, of samples or experimental units where we can take a batch of pigs and, and do gestation feeding treatments or lactation feed program treatments. Um, once again, probably just two treatments per study, mm -hmm. but have an experiment on a per batch basis or take many batches, right? So take the odd number batches or the even number batches and keep those on a separate feeding program um, and see the differences within the same site, right? So, so we are doing, you know, field commercial research um, at the cell farm level too that's provided, uh, um, you know, at least close the gap um, between systems that actually have those facilities and in our case, um, a system that doesn't. So it's still a disadvantage, right? I wish I had those facilities. I advocate for those facilities as much as I can, mm -hmm. um, but it definitely allows us to close the competitive gap in terms of the data that we're able to generate compared to our peers. So I would, yeah, just like to mention that is, is not only can you do field research on the grow finish uh, basis, but you can also do research within your south farms um, as well. Very cool, very cool. And, and uh, I don't know if you have a, a, a minute to share and if you guys can share or not uh, some of the studies. I know you share Midwest meetings and, and a few others on the south side. Yeah, so, you know, one objective that we've really had as a system is to improve our livability from breed clear to market, right? So, you know, one thing that I really focused on with, within that path is starting, you know, at, at farrowing, at birth. Right? How can we improve our total born um, rate compared um, to our um, live born rate? Right. So, okay. so total born and live born for any system, unfortunately, has two different slopes. Right. Both are increasing, but not at the same slope. Right. The yeah. slopes aren't parallel. Right. So, right. for every one pig that you know we have total born, unfortunately, we don't get that same pig in terms of live born. So. So once again, really, really took it upon myself on how do we make those slopes more parallel and how do we close that gap? So um, there's been some really good research um, by Peter Fields lab within this area. Um, so looked at what first uh, feeding amount um, and timing prior to when they farrow, um, what impact that can have on stillborn rate. Um, and maybe anecdotally prolapses, right? Mm -hmm. So what we found is that, you know, um, before I started, there was really no pre-ferro feeding protocol. Um, farms were either giving a scoop of feed in the day or just turning the automated feed system on and, and letting them eat, you know, six, eight, 12 pounds a day. Um, so what we did is, is we tried to mimic those two protocols with feeding two pounds twice a day um, to try to close down the gap between the sow or the gilt's last meal and when she farrows to mm -hmm. improve her glucose status, mm -hmm. but also limit the amount of feed that, that she has um, and, and really try to decrease constipation as much as possible, right? So there's, there's, there's two tunnels as she's farrowing, right? There's, their, there's the digestive tract tunnel, right? Mm -hmm. And then there's the birthing canal, right? So if we can decrease the amount that's in that digestive tract tunnel, um, and, and help decrease the farrowing rate or help decrease the, um, the constraint that she has during farrowing, uh, then maybe that 15th or 16th pig that's born is now alive and is not stillborn, right? Mm -hmm. So, so what we, we did, once again, a controlled study, um, took, you know, two or three different batches, 
um, at the same time. So same health status, same intake, same genetic, same site, all under the same roof. Randomize those sows to treatments, right? And, and determine that if we fed sows two pounds twice a day, we were able to decrease our stillborn rate with, uh, by about 3%, right? So, so once again, if, if you take that times 150,000 sows, right, that, that's a lot of money um, yeah. or re added revenue that's generated for a system. So once again, we didn't need a fancy research facility to generate that data, right? Yeah. Just took some time and some effort and some sleeves rolled up to generate that data um, and show how big of impact that, that would have for our system. So we did that. Um, what's coming up um, to further that initiative, we're working on some transition feeding research, mm -hmm. right? So uh, transition feeding, I think, sends shivers down most nutritionists and feed desk and, and feed mill people, and I'm probably no different, right? It's a logistical nightmare. However, as I mentioned Earlier in this podcast, we have transitioned a lot of our farms to a batch farrowed system. Mm -hmm. So because of that, we have a known um, wean date where everything's cleaned out and we're going to wash those farrowing rooms up and we have a known loading date um, till we decide to one day transition those back to a traditional or continuous farrowed system, right? So mm -hmm. because of that, we can budget feed accordingly like we would a wean to finish barn. And yeah, you, you may have some of your last phase of your lactation feed left over, but a little consumption, um, they're currently eating that same diet today. So a little consumption of that before their pharaoh isn't going to hurt them. So, so what we um, are trying to attempt here is um, to see if first, it's, is it logistically possible? Can we deliver a two-phase lactation diet? Mm -hmm. right? Can our mill manufacture it? Can we get delivered? Can we execute it? And then if we can do those three things, then what is the impact of that? So I have an intern that's starting in the middle of May. Um, we're gonna, gonna conduct that research over June and July and hopefully have research findings um, on it presented at Midwest in March on how successful that attempt was. So very cool. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll see. Um, we are we are definitely uh, just just like um, our, our kids are going to crawl, walk, and then run down uh -huh. this avenue. And we're in the very early crawl stages of it. How about that, Marcy? Right, right. Yeah, that's exciting research uh, trade that we are doing. Uh, it's an interesting area to learn more for sure. Yeah. Yep. So, so other things that we've done, right? So we've done bump feeding trials. Um, you know, we've done lysine level trials. Um, you know, NDF or total fiber type trials, et cetera, to try to determine what the impact is on, on total cell performance. So, so there's, there's a handful of things that we've accomplished within our system. So. Very cool. And now I need to ask about bump feeding. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I vaguely <laughs> recall. I know. Yeah. What, what do you guys find? I vaguely remember. Yeah. So, so we, we found that we were, we were able to actually increase birth weight when we bump fed, mm -hmm. but all that was, was as we looked at the distribution of that, we only um, skewed out the top 10% of birth weight. Mm -hmm. So we had no impact on what we consider non-viable pigs. So pigs that were born under a pound or one and a half pounds or two pounds, mm -hmm. we had no impact on, on that distribution um, we only had an impact on the right-hand curve of the distribution. So, so that extra birth weight and what we extrapolated that would be wean weight or market weight um, did not um, provide enough additional revenue of the cost of bump feeding the sow, right? So, you know, every pound of gestation feeds probably 10 cents 
you know, um, per sow on a given place, right? So if you're bump feeding two pounds for 14 days, mm -hmm. right, that, that really adds up once again across 100,000 sows. So, right. yeah, we, we did find a very small birth weight um, difference, but it was not enough to justify um, the, the revenue um, of the investment. Yeah, the return over investment wasn't there. Interesting. Very cool. Very cool. Did you guys look at uh, stillborn or lactation intake at all? Or yeah. Not? Yeah. So we did look at that. Yeah. I should have mentioned that as well. Right. So we did see a stillborn increase um, and then lactation intake we didn't measure. Um, but yeah, we, we would assume as, as most literature seen that, that lactation intake is probably not likely to be um, improved if you bump feed, right? You're right. right. probably just going to keep it the same or drag or reduce, it. Or reduce. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yep. So. Very cool. One comment there, Trey, that, that something I was discussing a few days ago with, uh, with someone was the, you know, we tried to extrapolate that birth weight change through the market, right? But the, the question I have, and I'd never seen a study like that, would be, okay, that birth weight, let's say if it's just got, uh, glycogen in the muscle and, and liver, and if he burns that very quickly, you know, it's different than, oh, it's just a heavier pig by nature. No, it's... It, you know, it might not even multi multiply or whatever you want to call it. Correct. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's, you know, um, a very good area to, to, you know, to really focus on, right? What is the myth of weaning weight to market weight, right? And it's it's probably going to be different, you know, for, for different scenarios, just like you mentioned, right? So, so in some case, you know, it, it, a pound may be a pound, but in other cases, it, it may be something that that just doesn't hold on, whether that's water weight or visceral weight or or glycogen or or whatever it may be, right? So at the end of the day, it's all about carcass weight. So right, perfect, good stuff. Since 1971, Zinpro Corporation has focused on one thing: trace mineral nutrition. As the most research-proven organic feed trace mineral products in the industry, Zinpro Performance Minerals deliver performance and profitability to swine operations around the globe. To know more, go to zinpro.com. For knowledge and news from the global swine industry, access our partner, thepigsite.com. It is time to our famous three question I have for you, Trey, here on the three question is, uh, what's your favorite pig-related uh, book or resource? Sure. So, so I have two, and one's actually been a really good resource for me here as we go through these unprecedented times, and, and that's the biology of the domestic pig. Mm. So I have the 2001 version uh, by Pond and, and Mearsman, and the great part about that resource is it has a lot of data and a lot of tables on just the gender biology of the pig that probably can't be um, determined with today's IACOC and animal welfare and research standards today, right? So, so there's a lot of things in terms of, you know, um, a visceral weight or carcass weight information, you know, on, on pigs from birth all the way to growth, um, or excuse me, to market. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of a lot of good information that when you're getting outside of the box and having to feed pigs differently than how we were trained, right? When we were in grad school during this, you know, very unique and emergency like time, mm -hmm. um, it's an outstanding resource. Um, 
you know, if you're trying to determine what's the actual amount of, of grams per lysine or, or kcals that a pig needs to sustain body weight, mm-hmm. you know, 280, 290, 300, that book has a lot of information to help you generate the math that's needed to try to answer that. Mm-hmm. So, so that's a great resource um, and, and use that all the time. Uh, the second great resource is more of a, um, a suggestion to aspiring swine nutritionists that may be in graduate school or, or finishing up their undergraduate degrees. Mm-hmm. And it's eight years old now, which, which kind of dates us, but feed efficiency mm-hmm. in swine, right? Mm-hmm. So um, collaboration between a lot of different institutions, right? Our institutions, K-State and Iowa State, um, put that book together at the start of the feed efficiency grant. Um, it's a really good uh, book um, in terms of applied science and practical application, but also basic science and really understanding what's occurring at the tissue or the cell level of the pig to maximize feed efficiency, right, and rate of gain um, and other production variables. So, so yeah, if you're a, a new master's student or if you're a senior in college and, and you're thinking that you want to be a swine nutritionist, that would definitely be a book that I'd recommend reading from, from cover to cover a couple different times uh, to determine um, you know, and learn just some basic good concepts and understanding of swine nutrition. So those would be the, the two references that I use quite a bit and would recommend. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. They also have those fact sheets are very summarized. Very, yes. very cool. Yeah. Yeah. English and Spanish. Too. Oh, I didn't know. Very yeah. nice. Yeah. So, so cool. Uh, how about in general, any resource or book in general? Yeah. Um, so I, I have two that I've really appreciated in my young career. So, Uh, The first is one that um, I was part of an emerging leadership academy at Iowa State, um, and my mentor, Elizabeth Lonergan, um, suggested that we would, you know, basically go through a book and and read it and discuss it on a weekly basis and and try to see how we could apply it going forward um, in my career. And that book was called Getting to Yes. Um, And the author of that um, is Vischer... Fisher and, and Yuri. Um, okay. So it's an old book. It was published like 30 years ago and has, has had several different updates to it. Um, but it really focuses on, you know, the art of influence and the ability to negotiate without necessarily giving in. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I think a, a, a big part of, of our jobs as swine nutritionists that is not talking about enough is, is our ability to influence people, right? Mm-hmm, so we mm-hmm. influence people at the boardroom level and the ownership level, all the way down to the slat and mill level, right? And, and we have to be impactful, right? Because our time's limited, right? So, so if right. we're suggesting a change or if we're, we're re-coaching a protocol, we need to make sure that that's in place because we can't go there the next day, mm-hmm. right? We don't have that right. time um, allotted to us. So we need to make sure if we're spending, you know, 20 minutes or 30 minutes, um, a covering a situation that that it's it's in place for a long long time, right? Because we right. can't. So so that's a really good resource. And every now and then, I probably pick it up about every six months and reread it, oh, wow. um, just to make sure that my skills are sharp. So that's a good one. Um, the other one actually, uh, Wayne Cast gave it to me when I was mm. starting my career, and it's called Lead for God's Sake. Mm. Uh, and it's written by a uh, Todd uh, Gonwer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it's really three characters that are in it. So it's a high school janitor, um, the head basketball coach at the school, and then his friend who's the CEO of, of a top 500 company. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really explains um, how, how you should lead 
um, with different strategies, right? So, so you can't always use the ax, as they say, and, and just yell and demand, mm-hmm. right? But, but you can't also, you know, always, always use the feather, right? So you, you can't always say, hey, you're doing a great job, right? Mm-hmm. Even though you're not, right? Mm-hmm. Th- th- there's a balance between those two, and, and every situation requires a different strategy, and, and you just can't always play the same card over and over and over again, because right. as I mentioned before, your influence will be less impactful and will get lost. Right. So those would be the two references right. um, that, that I would really suggest, you know, my peers and your listeners um, to look at. They're really short reads. Both books probably aren't more than 100 pages. Oh, wow. um, you, you can definitely read them. You know, uh, one day we'll be able to take plane trips again. Um, you can definitely read it <laughs> to and from your destination. So. Wow. Very cool. Yeah, those are sounds like they sound like a very good books and, and I'm sure um, – our audience is going to appreciate that, um, Trey. And then the last question is, uh, what, in your opinion, what sets apart successful swine professionals from those who are not? Yeah, I was thinking about this um, last night, um, being an avid follower of your podcast, have been some, you. some really good answers on this question, right? And just being 31 years old, right, it'd probably be a little bit of a stretch for me to say, hey, here's what separates the really good ones from the really bad ones, right? Right, right, right. So, but, but what I will say here, um, I had the opportunity to write an, an editorial um, for the National Hog Farmer. Um, I think it was published a couple weeks ago on yeah. what lessons I've learned within my three years at AVC as a swine nutritionist. So That's maybe cool. I could share a couple of yeah. those lessons instead. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, the lessons that I really wrote about and what I've learned that has allowed me to stay successful in, in this position is first, buy-in is going to take time. Mm-hmm. Right. So whether that's a protocol change or or establishing your influence with on a, a leadership team or a production team. Right. That's going to take time and effort and champion. Right. So mm-hmm. we have 42 different South farms. We have 160 different wean to finish sites. We have nursery sites. We have 28 different mills. Right. So if mm-hmm. I change something that's feed protocol related, I'd have to make that change across about 800 different people. Mm-hmm. Right. And that change um, and how that lands on those 800 different people's priority list, right. maybe number one or maybe number 40, right? Mm-hmm. So it's completely naive to that concept, right? I, mm. I thought if we, if we set in a boardroom and got our leadership teams together and we took a vote on a protocol change, mm-hmm. it would flip no. like a light switch and everyone would champion it, right? We all have different priorities and responsibilities, right? So, right. So, so change takes time, right? Even though it's voted on and you type it up and, and you send it out and it's in the official handbook, right? It, mm-hmm. It's in your protocol, right? You have to go champion that change um, and that takes time. So a couple things that I learned to shorten that time of implementation are, are A, find champions at each individual site or individual mills that can carry that football for you. Mm-hmm. Right. So who's really influence that can help influence five different people or 10 different people or 20 different people. So you don't have to influence all 800, um, you know, at, at each individual time. Right. So can you influence 20 different people? And then those 20 can influence those 800 to get a change made. Right. So mm-hmm. identifying those key people and those influencers that can really make changes at a South farm, at a feed mill, um, on our feed desk team. Um, et cetera, that that will really save you some time and get those implementations um, in place. Very nice. So so that's a big lesson. The second lesson, right, is is you have to continuously re-coach, 
right? So once again, I was naive thinking, okay, if I, if I say this one time, it's it's good as gold, right? People mm-hmm. are going to listen to me, right? Mm-hmm. Well, they may listen and, and they, they may put it into practice for a couple of weeks or a couple months, right? But eventually you're going to have to re-follow up and re-coach that. And, and that need is constant. Right. Furthermore, within a system like ours, our employees, you know, will, will get promoted. They will mm-hmm. find other opportunities. They will mm-hmm. be cross-trained, right? Mm-hmm. Even on the wing to finish side, sometimes their sons or daughters are going to be the primary caretakers. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we're incorporating new sites within our system, right? So mm-hmm. you have to recoach things over and over. So even though it's the, the 20,000th time that you've maybe went over how to mat feed mm-hmm. or how to feed sows pre-feral like we just talked about earlier, mm-hmm. every single time on your visit, you need to go over those things and you need to treat them like it's the first time that you've went over them, like, right? Like you need to have passion for it and change it. Um, yeah. a couple, couple other things that I talked about there was, you know, don't be afraid to step up, right? Mm-hmm. So your company's hired you not just for your primary responsibility and your skill set, right? Mm-hmm. AMBC did not hire me just to oversee our feeding programs, right? That they hired me for, for problem solving skills and the ability to, to understand variables and, and outputs and make a model of it to try to help um, determine predictable outcomes, whether that's feed related or not, right? So, so it, it, if you're around a meeting or you're within a team and you see an opportunity that your skill set can help um, come up with a solution, that's it's you know take advantage of that, right? Um, also within that, you know, as you're stepping up, make sure you're being an independent thinker. Right, I think it's easy um, and it's human nature for people to want to like our ideas. Right, I hope people like this podcast. Mm-hmm. Right, <laughs> mm-hmm. but but don't just tell them or, or give information that they want to hear. Right, mm-hmm. um, really be independent in your thought and and um, don't be swayed by by what the CEO has to say or the CEO has to say. Right. Um, you know, have, have, have a backbone, have some gumption, have some guts and, and say what you think is correct right now. Now don't misinterpret that. Um, and always, you know, play the devil's advocate, right? That's just going to cause unnecessary friction and problems. Right. But you know, don't, don't just take a poll, right. And say, okay, five people are in favor of this and two people aren't, or take a poll and say, Hey, how much synthetic lysine are you using? Right. Mm -hmm. And take the average, Mm -hmm. right. You know, be independent. And then, you know, two last lessons, Marcio, and I'll make this quick. Um, uh, I love it. Be conscious of your time, right? Um, have, have the ability to say no, right? And make yeah. sure you're spending your time on $1,000 jobs instead of $10 jobs, mm-hmm. right? That's really important. And then the last one is, is make sure that you enjoy and, and share in your team success, right? So as I said, it probably takes 800 people to get a feeding protocol change and executed, right? It's, yeah. it's a minor miracle, the fact that we get feed to pigs every day and, and they consume it as formulated, right? So, mm-hmm. so, so don't, don't sit in a boardroom and go, I did this, I did this, look right. at, look at yeah. what our average daily gain is, right? right. <laughs> no, you, you just coached the team and guided the ship, right? They made the play and got you to your destination. So, so always make sure to be gracious, be mm-hmm. humble, um, thank the people that actually executed what, what you put in place, right? So yeah. take time to write thank you notes, thank you emails. Um, always say we, never say I, right? Yeah. So, um, the, yeah, so those are, those are lessons that, that I would provide on. And, and I think, hopefully, um, if, you, if you put those things in place, 
um, like I've learned that I need to put in place, hopefully that makes you successful and separates yourself as a successful swine professional um, and puts you ahead of a pack instead of being in the middle of the crop. Amazing. Yeah, this is very good. Very comprehensive, Trey. And very, yeah, no, this is very good. I'm sure I helped me. And that's funny enough, a lot of this podcast, right? I'm, I'm also selfish, right? I want to learn. Oh, yeah. So it helps me. <laughs> hey. It's going to help a lot of people too, you know. Right. The best gift to give is one that they enjoy and you can use, right? Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. Well, this is amazing. Uh, a lot of good stuff. A lot of insights there on the research side uh, trade that I'm sure is going to help a lot of people around the globe because again, uh, majority of big producers around the globe don't have the luxury of having uh, you know lots of uh, research facilities, Correct. and uh, and even the ones that do, they can also do some some uh, more large scale, even more large scale studies across the system. So. So with that, thanks so much for our time, Trey. Appreciate it. Hey, thank, yeah, thank you, Marcio. And, and thanks again for putting together this podcast, right? Where um, a lot of us are socially isolated and, and don't have the communication or the meetings that we used to, right? So um, part of the way that we're getting information out there is, is through this podcast and, and through the information you're putting out. So thank, so thank you for being a resource to, to the swine industry. Really appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate that. And, and I was even talking, I believe I was talking to Dr. Drushi yesterday and we were talking about that. And, and I, the way I think about it is, is extension, right? It's not your standard yeah. universe extension, but it is extension. That's, you know, so I appreciate always, uh, you know, all the, all the guests like you. So. Yeah, no, my pleasure, Marcio. Hey everyone. Please share our episodes with as many people as you can so we can continue to impact the life of swine professionals from around the globe with the wisdom of our great guests. Before you go, make sure to get in our waitlist for the Swine Talks Web Conference, the first online conference of the global swine industry, an update on hot topics, and we're even going to have some controversial topics of the global swine industry so you can leverage that knowledge in your day to day. Go to swinetalks.com and get on our wait list. We'll talk soon.